Now I have announced my text as those words at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I hope to get to those words towards the end of dealing with this subject this evening, but I trust you'll forgive me if I don't spend very long actually on these words. In a sense, I want to look what's behind these words initially. So I want to look at this question of what faith is. I hope that you have understood from what I said this morning that faith is important. But I want to think for a little while this evening about what it actually is. Now, it's a, I'm going to deal with that by, first of all, looking at the importance of the, the question, and then I want to look at what faith is not, and then finally, what faith is. Well, as I said this morning, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the way by which God justifies the ungodly. So if we're to be right with God, this is a a vital subject for us, isn't it? If faith is the only way in which we can be right with God, then, of course, it's a vital question. What is faith then? According to the Lord Jesus Christ, this, the answer to this question will determine our destiny. Whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In John's Gospel, in chapter 6, you remember those words of the Lord Jesus, where he sums up the whole duty of human beings in this time of history. John chapter 6 and verse 29. They'd asked him, what, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? How can we do what God wants us to do? Well, what is the answer? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the great requirement of God. If if we were to ask, what does God want me to do? Well, you have the answer there. God wants us to believe in his son. Well, what does that mean? In the New Testament, it's especially focused, isn't it? It comes to a, a, a fine focus in passages like Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 10. Puts it very clearly, doesn't he? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a central issue in the Bible. We're to believe in the word of the Lord. It is at the very root of of godly living. You can't live a godly life without faith. In that passage that we've looked at, you know it immediately goes on to that great passage in chapter 11, by faith, by faith, by faith. All these Old Testament saints, how did they do what they did? These great heroes that we have all the way through the pages of the Old Testament, how is it that they were like that? How is it that they came to be those heroes of faith? Well, it's, 
It's by faith. It was at the very root of all they did and of all that they became. As I said this morning, it's by faith that we are made right with God. The just shall live by faith. In the New Testament, the giving of the Holy Spirit is very much tied up with this issue of faith. Stephen was a man of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So you can see that it's a vital subject. I don't want to overcomplicate things tonight. It's true, isn't it, that a, that a, a small child can hear of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in their heart in him and be saved. A person with limited teaching, limited Bible knowledge can read a gospel or even part of a gospel. And as they uh, come to meet with Jesus as he's presented to us in the gospel, faith in him can be there in their hearts. And they rest on him, they trust in him and are saved. But I'm convinced that our understanding and our thinking about the nature of faith is under attack. And that's what I want to go on to secondly. What faith is not. And I believe at this point that this is a a satanic attack. True faith is not what the new atheists tell us it is. I've got two quotations that give you a flavor of what I mean when I say that. The first one is a quotation from Robert Pennock, who's a professional philosopher at Michigan State University. He's an anti-creationist, and he's working on what's called the Avida Project, uh, which is attempting to demonstrate the capabilities of evolution uh, by studying self-replicating computer programs. Now, if I said that to my brother, he would chuckle because he would say that computer programs can only do what you program them to do. But anyway, that's the subject that he's working on. But this is a quotation that explains something of what he says faith is. He says, the very definition of faith... And this is, a, this is a professional philosopher who ought to know what he's talking about. The very definition of faith and its religious significance lies in believing without evidence or even in spite of evidence to the contrary. So do you see what he's saying? Faith is totally different from following the evidence where it leads Faith is something that doesn't need any evidence. And faith is even something that goes on believing in spite of the evidence otherwise. Richard Dawkins similarly says this, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, or even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. I'm sure you've all heard of carbon monoxide. It's called, isn't it, the silent killer. 
has no smell. You can't see it, it's got no colour. And yet, when you breathe it into your lungs, it blocks all the places that would normally carry oxygen to your vital organs. And if you keep on breathing it, you starve your brain and your vital organs of your body of oxygen and it will eventually kill you. Silent killer. Now I believe that this idea of faith is like that. It's like a a silent killer of genuine, real faith. I don't believe that this idea originated with Pennock or Dawkins. I believe that this comes from hell itself. And the thing is that you and I have to live in that atmosphere. My concern is that as Christian believers, we are influenced by that idea of faith. And I want to try and show you that that is not what the Bible teaches us, what faith is. It's something completely different. This idea of faith as something being without evidence, I think, is behind this division of a private sphere where you have your religion and the public sphere where religion is excluded. You can have your private convictions. You can have your personal faith choices. You can do what you think is right, but you can't say that this is right. And in the public sphere, we have reason and logic and proper truth claims. And we can make laws that apply to everyone. But religion is excluded completely. I have a copy of the shorter Oxford Dictionary at home. It's called the Shorter Oxford Dictionary, but it's still quite big. Two big volumes. I was tempted to bring one, but it was far too heavy. The edition that I have, I think, is the fifth edition. And the very first description of what faith is in that dictionary is wrong. I'm not saying that they're deliberately deceiving people in the shorter Oxford Dictionary. What I am saying is that this whole idea that is percolating through our culture and through society... Is, is, is a noxious, poisonous lie. And it's affecting our whole religious life. So the first definition in this fifth edition of the Shorter Oxford Dictionary, faith is confidence, reliance, belief, especially without evidence or proof. That's the first description, the first definition of what faith is. Whereas if you go back to earlier editions, this I think is the third edition of the Shorter Oxford Dictionary. And the first description, confidence, reliance, trust, belief proceeding from reliance on testimony or authority. Totally different. Can you see the difference? It's a totally different definition of what faith actually is. Perhaps I can try and show you a little bit 
of why I think this is important. The roots of this word faith seem to come from the concept of of what is binding upon us. That seems to be the real root of these words that we uh, use. Uh, The Greek word pistis, the Latin word fides, and our word faith. What we believe is what compels our confidence. We have faith in whatever we are convinced is true. Faith relies on evidence. Faith depends upon evidence. It's not what, how Richard Dawkins describes it. The evidence that our faith rests upon is just as good. It is, in fact, it's far better. It is absolutely convincing, compelling evidence. In the Old Testament, the various words uh, that are translated faith come from a root Hebrew word from which we get our word amen. And it has the meaning of something that is sure, something that is certain, something that is established, something that is true and enduring. In the Old Testament, you can have water of faith. I wonder if you can think what that is, water of faith. It's not water that you believe in despite the evidence that there is no water there. It's water that you can depend on. It's water that is reliable. It's water that's going to be there in the hottest summer summer day. In the Old Testament, you can have a peg or a nail of faith. I wonder if you can think what that is. The Scots have a term, you can hang your coat on it if there's something that is absolutely certain, absolutely sure. And that's what a peg of faith is, or a nail of faith. It's, it's, it's a nail that's got grip, it's well hammered in, it's something that you can really put weight on and it will, it will stay there, it will be secure, it will be there next year. In the Old Testament you have the moon of faith. What does that mean? Well, it means the moon's going to be reliable. You can rely on it. You can, you, you can, you can put it in your calendar as to, as to what's going to be happening, what the phases of the moon are. It's reliable. You can put your trust in it. I don't know if you can see the difference between these two concepts of faith. See what happens when you put the word full on the end. When you think of faith, and then you think of faithful. Now, I, I believe that you do that in the modern environment, and, and there's something quite different between those two terms. We have a different concept in our minds about what faith is compared with what we, when we put the word full on the end of it. Somebody who's full of faith is, is faithful. Whereas our two words, it seems to me, have been forced further and further and further apart. An ancient Greek writer said this, a man is born for faith. Those who overthrow faith overthrow the human distinctiveness. They overthrow human friendship. They overthrow the very basis 
for nationhood. That was his understanding of faith and its importance. So what, what is faith then? Faith, I believe, is at the root of our characters. Put less after faith. What do you get? Faithless. What is it to be unbelieving? It is to be faithless. It's the opposite of being faithful. To be unbelieving is not a morally neutral thing. It's not a simple matter of personal choice. I believe and you don't, and that's how it is. It's not like that in the Bible. Faith is a, a, a moral thing. Faith is something that is absolutely required of us. Faith is something that is has got the, the biggest ought behind it. We ought to believe. It is required of us that we do believe. It is the worst possible sin not to believe. Unbelief is the root sin. It's the, it's the sin that is underneath every other sin. Faith displays and determines uh, our heart commitments. I don't often quote anything from Mary Poppins when I'm preaching. But you remember the song. Fidelity, fiduciary, bank. Fidelity, fiduciary. The two key roots in both of those words come from the Greek word of faith. Fidelity, fiduciary. It's to do with trust, isn't it? It's to do with our trust in people, our personal trust. Think of the word confidence. It's got the same root in it. Bonafides. Same root in good faith. It has a different sense to it, doesn't it, than our uh, popular understanding of the word faith and believing. Faith is at the root of our characters. It is at the root of true godliness. But then faith responds to the reality of authority. That's why I read that passage in Matthew chapter 8. I hope I'm not making this difficult and complicated, but I do believe that it's of vital importance. Do you see how the thinking of the centurion was working He was comparing the situation with what he knew about what it was like being a soldier. My fellow elder uh, in Carlisle is a man who came out of the army. And in the army, every single person in the army is aware of what authority is and what it means. And if there's somebody with a higher rank than you and they give you an instruction... You don't sort of look at them and say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. You do it because they're an authority over you. And the army can't possibly function unless it has this clear ranking system. 
That there is clear command structure and that those commands need to be able to be carried out. And that's the background of this centurion, isn't it? He understood all of that. He was, had his commanding officer and he was able to issue commands to his troops, his soldiers. Speak a word. That's all you need to do, Jesus. You say the word. You issue the command and it will be done. I understand this. I understand this process. That's, that's my business. I know about authority. What you do is you issue a command and people are run to obey it. What was he saying? He was saying that he recognized that Jesus had real, genuine authority. He could see it. He was a man whose whole life had been in this atmosphere of authority and he understood what real authority was. I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. But then notice how Jesus responds. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, what? I have not found such great understanding in all Israel. That's not what he said. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Here is a man who understands what faith is. And he understands what faith is because he understands what authority means. And he recognizes that that Jesus is the supreme source of all authority and power. He knew what it was to be commanded. And he knew what it was to, to feel the weight of that command coming from the emperor maybe. And his life would depend on it. But here is somebody who has more authority than all the emperors that have ever existed. And he could recognize it. And Jesus says that is what faith is. That's what faith is. Or think of the dying thief. Another great example of faith, isn't it? But look carefully at what happens on the cross. As that, what he really was, was a a terrorist, wasn't he? And we're told in Mark's gospel that both of them were ridiculing Jesus to begin with. But one of those thieves, as he observed Jesus dying, as he observed what was going on on that central cross, as he looked carefully at Jesus, his mind was changed, wasn't it? And he turned away from that ridicule of Jesus. He turned away from that poking fun. And instead of saying, well, if you're, a, if you're a king, then come down off the cross and let us down as well. Instead of saying things like that, there's a real prayer, isn't there? But notice what it is. Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He could see 
Something about Jesus dying on the cross. Something about the way that Jesus died. Again, this was a man who knew something about authority, didn't he? From the wrong side of it. He'd been evading authority. He'd been fighting against authority. But he knew what it was. And looking at Jesus on the cross, he could see that here was the source of genuine authority and power. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here is a real king. Faith recognizes that authority needs an author. And coming finally to my text. I'm sorry it's taken such a long time to get here. The writer of this letter gives us two great ingredients to faith. It's the closest thing that we get in the New Testament Testament to a definition of what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. It's the certainty or confidence of hope. It's a certainty and a confidence that is built on that supreme authority of the word of God. It's a a confidence that rests on that truth that not a, a jot or a tittle will fail of anything that God has spoken because he is a faithful God who who has all authority and power. And when he speaks, that is the very definition of reality. He's entirely worthy of our trust. We can rest with absolute confidence on every word of God. We're going to think how stupid it was. We're going to be angry with ourselves that we didn't trust more fully and completely in every promise that God has given. Why didn't I rest completely? How true God is to every word that he has spoken. You can't put a razor between God and his word. We can have certainty of hope in all his promises. And we can have this conviction of the value and the reality of things not seen. It's the evidence of things not seen. It is the true subsistence of things that are not seen. We can have that conviction of the reality of all that God has spoken concerning the future. And if this True faith is in us. It will have a good result. When I was at school, I didn't like school reports. And that was because often there was a disconnection between the reality of what was going on in school and the reports that got taken home by myself. At what's now year 10, I changed from one secondary school to another. In the first secondary school that I went to, they studied German first. So the first three years of my secondary school, I'd supposedly been learning German. 
And the school that I went to, the second school that I went to, they'd studied French for the first three years. But I didn't tell my German teacher that I'd actually studied German for three years. And surprisingly, my German teacher didn't realize either. But the report that I got from my German teacher was actually quite good. I was quite pleased with the report that I got from my German teacher. I was quite pleased. I was doing quite well in, in German until it got to parents' evening. And that's when the cat was let out of the bag. My parents, what caused them to say it, I don't know to this day, but they said, you do realize that he's already done German for three years, don't you? Well, my good report suddenly wasn't really worth very much after that. My good report became a bad report. It became a bad report from my parents' point of view, and it became an even worse report from my German teacher's point of view. I was in trouble. The next German lesson after that, I knew I was in trouble. I didn't want to go. It's a horrible situation to be in, isn't it? A bad report. Growing up, Jimmy Savile was a well-known, well-thought-of figure in the charity world, wasn't he? Had a good report. An OBE, a knighthood, a good report, even from the Queen. But where did it all end up? Well, this passage tells us the way to having a good report. Not just a good report from a teacher, not just a good report from our parents or before our peers, not a good report from the Queen, but how to have a good report from God. Encourages us not to draw back. Keep on going. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep on laying hold of those promises that God has given to us. Keep on praying through the reality of those promises. Keep on laying hold of the substance of those things that are hoped for and the evidence of those things that are not seen. And there will be a good report. And it's interesting that these words, perhaps we can think of them in a different light after what I've said this evening. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and believing Servant or slave it is in the original, slave of faith. A slave of faith is a faithful servant. And it's those faithful servants who are given a good report. Well, may God enable us to be like that, to be those who hear that voice. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.